Hello and welcome to the MVR podcast, season two, episode 14. I'm Rachel Elmer. And I'm Peter Jacob. And today we're talking about inequality and fear of social control. It's a big topic, Peter. Yes, and we probably won't be able to cover it comprehensively. Sorry? In 25 minutes. In 25 minutes, yeah. (laughs) There are people who who study this, you know, over the course of their entire career. (laughs) And today we're going to be nailing it in 25 minutes. Yeah, well, I guess what it means for NVR and just some some considerations, some thoughts. Yeah, and so I guess I'll start because this... Today's topic came about from a recent supervision with a colleague um, this morning, in fact. Um, so this person, this this practitioner has left employment and um, gone into self-employment from a from a, a post-adoption social worker into a, a, a therapeutic practitioner, um, which we talked a lot about the shifts of being employed and self-employed and all of those things. Um, And this practitioner has been funded by a um, a, a, some match funding to deliver an MVR group for a group of parents in an area in um, up north. Um, And I guess the area of which this, this work is taking place can be seen as a, a challenging community where they've experienced lots of hardships and um, yeah constraints of, of social abilities and, and um, everything else. So the social worker was talking about setting up this 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 parent group um, and that it's not MVR per se, but it's certainly MVR light. So just talking about mm-hmm. raising presence, talking about um, escalations, patterns of escalations and just recognizing self. So she's really carefully thought about the content and it's only for seven weeks. But she began to share with me the setup of, of um, the, the kind of the, the group guidelines, the group boundaries, the group um, settings of, of which they're going to operate within. And she talked about safeguarding and confidentiality. And I asked, invited her to share with me how she was going to communicate that to this this group of, of seven families and um and what i what i witnessed was that she, she was she was communicating this message in a very i call it social work speak and i think social workers out there would know what i mean um and i wondered invited her to think about how that would be received by these parents in a group this social work speak um you know should you cause harm to self and others, then I have a duty of care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I wondered what, what she might want to choose a different language to communicate this. And I wondered what she thought the families would think about that speak and how by using another uh, narrative might shift the dynamics in the group. Just some considerations, really. Well, what you're describing is how you already sort of went quite far in inviting this colleague to uh, reposition herself. I'm just curious, um, even before we speak about that in any detail, 
to learn more from you about how the initial position uh, panned out in terms of her relationship with the other, with the parents in the group, how she felt, you know, even, even coming to the group evening, you know, afterwards, you know, these sort of, um, the, the responses in yourself that you feel to your communication with your clients. I, I'd be curious how that, um, what kind of responses emanated from the initial position that she took? Well, I, I think that was a really long question, but I think what my response to that is that she was described, the practitioner was describing herself feeling very anxious and nervous about communicating um, the kind of the group rules, if you like, and communicating that, positioned her in a, a slightly anxious, um, yeah, she had a slightly anxious take on how she was to communicate this to the group. What, what, what do you think that nervousness and that anxiety were about? Well, I invited her to share with me what she thought, and, and she described it about being, um, we talked about the person who has the knowledge i.e. this this is a facilitator, you know, so she has she has been um trained in her up to her advanced level of MVR practice. She's experienced in individual work and group work. She's very seasoned as an MVR mm -hmm. practitioner. So she felt that she was in a position of knowing having that knowledge, but was also, I guess, one balancing that up with privileged positions and that privileged position making a parent feel less than to feel inadequate or to feel um on a back foot here this here this here comes this white middle class professional woman with all of this knowledge and she's going to tell us how to raise our kids she has no idea and so i think she was mindful of all of that that so so, so somewhere inside it seems she felt an uncertainty about the position she was going to take. And how she would be received. More and how, how that, yeah, how that position would be, how communicating from that position would be received. Mm. Um, and actually, the, it, it seems like initially, um, as, as many professionals are trained to do, she uh, overrode that discomfort rather than allowing that discomfort to have its own voice. W would that be a fair kind of uh, understanding of what happened to her and what brought about her anxiety? Maybe slightly. I think she's very able to uh, allow her thoughts to organically grow and find herself in the moment. Um, she's very warm and compassionate. She's very... Um, engaging with 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 you know as I've witnessed her practice, mm -hmm. so I think there was some some of that perhaps, but allowing herself to just organically find herself in the moment in the room, and relying on her instincts mm -hmm. to know mm -hmm. where she needs to position herself yeah. in the moment. So, so she has she had this sense that how she communicated from that position 
of knowing may uh, not sit well with the parents. Yeah. And and I was just wondering uh, what her her understandings were, why that might not sit well with the parents. And because you mentioned that the background is one of inequality, mm. perhaps economic deprivation, yeah. um, disparity. You know, yes. you, you mentioned her as a white uh, practitioner or white professional. And I understand that that sort of implies that there were many parents there or some parents who were people of color. So I'm just wondering uh, what she felt that they might have experienced, you know, in response to her, to her position. She was really careful about sharing that in the supervision about the parents that she'd be working in this group with may have experienced social workers in a very negative light. Mm-hmm. Maybe young people have been removed from care. In, in within this community she was also mindful about social work training and how that expertise and experience puts her in a much more knowing position she's working with some of these parents who education hasn't has been a challenge to them so they're reading and you know the literacy skills are um you know aren't as great as i'm sure they would want them to be so writing things on a board or writing things down or asking them to complete questionnaires or, you know, anything like that in the group setting could pose additional challenges. So I think she was really not overthinking, but really thinking carefully mm-hmm. about the nature of the group, the content, her position. Yeah, there's a lot to consider. So and what what comes to my mind uh, is a lot of work uh, with people belonging to ethnic minority communities belonging to um, belonging to socioeconomic disadvantaged uh, groups. Um, also, what comes to mind is training. Uh, yeah. I, I remember concerns of Aboriginal parents in mm. Australia um, that if they engaged with professionals at all, that their children would be removed from their care. Uh, I've heard of uh, concerns by indigenous uh, people in North America. Um, And I've heard, and in my own practice, I know of um, African-American parents and also in the UK, um, Caribbean, you know, parents of Caribbean, origin or from an African background, um, worrying about this a lot, Mm. often a lot more perhaps. Mm. And under similar circumstances, um, majority uh, parents, parents belonging to the majority of the population might. Mm. And how also people of, um, you know, lower socioeconomic uh, status will Mm. worry. Yeah. So it's it's really justified, I guess, to worry or to be concerned with how these parents might feel and what their concerns might be. And I guess it, by the sound of it, 
this colleague wanted to find a, a different way of positioning herself. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And really acknowledging those real fears and real worries mm -hmm. from parents in this group. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, she, she was really open to explore, you know, alternative narrative, alternative ways to communicate messages that didn't involve social work speak. So if if we're looking at practice that is both ethical and productive, mm. you know, where there is a real engagement, there is a real collaborative working relationship between the practitioner and the parents, mm. I guess we need to look at NVR practice that takes these inequalities and the fears that arise from these inequalities into consideration. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, that doesn't to me mean that as a practitioner, one shouldn't be mindful of child protection guidelines and the need to operate uh, conscientiously and effectively within, you know, child protection guidelines and procedures. Yet, I'm just curious, you, you, you mentioned earlier on that you sort of invited her to consider a different way of positioning herself. What, what did that look like? <clears throat> we talked about how that message could be conveyed in a group, in a language that is digestible. Mm -hmm. and using formal speak can feel quite intrusive mm -hmm. um, to parents to people who aren't used to that. Mm -hmm. um, and how might that be conveyed in, a, in another language? So we, we talked about really owning her, her concerns, her personal responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a, bit, a little bit about using some, uh, some neuro-de-escalation type body language. So to tilt her head, to, to touch her chest, to communicate that she welcomes everyone in the group and everyone has a voice and that she wants everyone to feel safe, that their safety is important to her. That includes, you know, it, it, that it would distress her if she felt anyone was being harmed um, or using harmful behaviours towards anyone else um, in and out of the group and that, that she would express her concerns with everybody first you know, before that, that was before it would be followed up. And that, so I think as a parent hearing that, it feels so um, integral to who this person was presenting herself as, you know, a very caring professional who has their safety and others in her mind and that she's here to support parents through this little journey of seven weeks in a group environment. Yeah, so we were just playing with some ideas about what could be communicated um, and how she could communicate that from a position of strength, not to avoid the obvious, you know, confidentiality and child um, safeguarding is paramount to what we do. You know, it's, it comes, it's always on our hat, we wear that hat firmly, but how could it be communicated? So just playing with some thoughts and ideas. Well, to me, these seem to be very profound thoughts and ideas. And you said, I think, five really important things all in one sentence. 
And I, I wonder whether uh, it may be valuable to reiterate them. Um, you spoke of the practitioner being welcoming. Mm. So in a sense, how do I initially approach the parents who come into the group? What is my focus? It is in welcoming them. Yeah. Yeah. And then I look at ways in which I communicate that this is a place where they will have their voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking of the voicelessness of people who belong to socioeconomically disadvantaged groups in society. Mm-hmm. The experience of voicelessness uh, of people who belong to minority groups in society. The experience of voicelessness, sometimes literally, of people who may have experienced domestic violence or other forms of interpersonal abuse. The voicelessness of people who may have felt that in the face of what professionals had to say, there was no space for them to articulate their own experience, their own beliefs, their own to tell their own story. Yeah, I've just literally written down, yeah, not being heard. Yeah. Being heard. Yeah. Then you mentioned safety. They are safe. And that includes feeling safe to speak about when I'm not happy about how I have responded to my child. Mm-hmm. Because, well, I won't have responded ideally to my child. And I, I'm thinking of, you know, what we often speak about, this notion of parental erasure, where parents feel they just don't exist as parents anymore. And one of the one of the hallmarks of erasure is when parents feel disconnected from their values. Mm. I don't want to be the parent who hollers at his kids or her kids. Mm. I don't want to be the parent who says um, awful things to the kids. Yet I found myself saying those in the moment. Mm. Now, am I afraid of feeling overwhelmed by guilt and by shame in front of the other parents? Mm. Or can I share that? And can I hear that other parents may have experienced something similar as well? Because Mm. actually what it's about is for us to reconnect to our values as parents. Mm. It's not about a characterization of being poor parents. Mm. Because those values are there. You know, we, we are parents who want the best for our child. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how where there is harm, harm to the parent, but possibly also harm caused by the parent, that rather than taking a, yeah, a social control position, the practitioner would take a first person, would give a first person message. Mm. This would distress me. Yeah. I would be distressed. I would be distressed for you. 
and I would be distressed for your child. Mm. And with the exception of very, very uh, unusual circumstances, should this be the case that I felt that I'm under an obligation to take something further and to report a child protection concern, I would discuss that with you. Yeah, first. And, hmm? Sorry. Yeah, first. I would discuss that with you first. Yes, in the very first instance, we would talk about that and even look at whether that can be a collaborative process. And that often in, in work with NVR, I have found that very, very helpful. Mm. When actually I've found myself on the same page with the parent and we wrote a report together. Mm. And that report contained a description of the incident, an understanding of went on, what went on, perhaps in the parent, perhaps in the child, and a very specific plan of action for the future within the framework of NVR. What the parent is going to do, what the supporters will do to help the parent do that, and what I will do to facilitate the supporters helping the parent so that it doesn't come to such incidents again. Yeah. So ultimately, that would be moving from a position of control, you mentioned strength, to a strong and collaborative position at the same time. So beautifully put, Peter. I could <laughs> so eloquent. No, you put all that in one sentence, Rachel. I just, boom, 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 I, I just wanted to unpack that because it was so rich what you said. It was great listening to that kind of. Yeah, that's what exactly what I meant, Peter. All of what you just said, exactly what I, I meant. I know that's what you meant. <laughs> I just couldn't word it like that. So, yeah, so I think that was kind of helping. I hope, you know, I hope it felt helpful to the to the supervisee that that she was equipped for tomorrow's group in a creating a different position of herself and, and communicating a different message, the same message in a different way. Yeah. I suddenly had a had a memory of a dad I worked with many many years ago, who was um, a sergeant, uh, you know, highest rank of NCO in the U.S. Armed Forces, and he said, you know, when I tell my men what to do, they do it. Mm -hmm. When I tell my son what to do. He doesn't do it. <laughs> that makes me feel really uncomfortable. But I guess when I'm his dad, I ain't no sergeant. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> yeah. So, so there is a difference, isn't there, between also different uh, job descriptions. Mm -hmm. There is a difference between the job description, perhaps, of a a social worker in child protection and the job description of an NVR practitioner. Delivering a group. Yeah. Mm. And it's not always easy, is it, moving from one framework to another? But it seemed, I'm, I'm thinking of um, 
uh, I'm thinking of um, the process between you and the colleague you, mm. you supervised um, as a form of really ethical supervision, you know, that you really supported her and she wanted that support in finding a position that honors um, the experience of people who have been disadvantaged among her clients mm-hmm. um, and um, and beyond being ethically uh, you know worthy it's also productive it works yeah yeah I did all that yeah exactly <laughs> in an hour yeah yeah Uh, you know i think as we kind of look at the clock and and think about winding up that i don't know just sometimes as practitioners we can fall into a trap of just knowing our language and stick into a standardized language and hope that everyone gets it and understands it and the meaning is still there, but but it can be lost. And I think tailoring what we say and when we say what we need to say to to the person we're working with makes us so authentic. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a nice conclusion. That is a nice conclusion. Great pearls of wisdom you have there, Mr. Jacob. <laughs> Is it goodbye from me? Yeah, and a goodbye from me. Okay, thank you.